Well, the last time we were here, if you were here, our attention was directed towards verse 3 to 14 of chapter 2, the same chapter. There we spent some time on the question of what it means and what it looks like to know God. You may recall that John provides us with some markers or some diagnostic tests of what is Christianity. And after that, he warms our hearts in verses 12 to 14 with this affirmation that he has for the Christians that he's writing to. In these verses, John is so zealous to affirm the faith of these believers that he does not find it trivial or meaningless to repeat to them the same words that he had written in verses 12 to 13 to them in verse 14. But given all of this affirmation which John lavishes on the church, our main text for consideration today may seem like a strange transition. After speaking so tenderly to this church, he issues this sobering warning to them. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. The apostle of love, as he is so affectionately called in antiquity, isn't shying away from the holistic health of the church. He wants that the church indeed knows that it is well, and indeed he wants to know that the church, he wants indeed for the church to know how to keep well. So he issues this warning to them. This is an urgent plea that we have here before us by the apostle. And we should also take notice that even the way that he introduces this command before us is instructive. It is as though he wants to grab our attention. He doesn't preface his remarks like what he usually does with beloved children, like when he's speaking about false teaching or about abiding in the truth. He doesn't do that. What we see here is strictly a warning given. We don't hear little children. We don't hear beloved. We don't hear brothers preceding this instruction. All we hear is stop it. Don't do it. Watch out. That's the kind of militant warning that we're getting here in this text. It's not that John is taking the issues that he spoke about before as light. That's not the case. It's just that there is a peculiar danger that Christians have living in a world that is secretly trying to entice them every moment. John sees it as particular import of of particular import because there is great peril that can accompany our souls if we have an attachment to the world. So therefore we should be wary of scoffing at this command as though it is completely irrelevant to us. These words are not penned here specifically for the ungodly. It's not as though John is trying to whisper some words of advice to the unbelieving world. He's not laying these words before us for those people who are out there. The letter comes to us within the context of a writing to Christians. It isn't irrelevant. So we shouldn't be thinking, I wish Susie was here to hear this message when we look at the passage before us. We shouldn't be thinking, oh, I wish my neighbor who's so whatless was here sitting down next to me. But we should consider our own souls when we come before this text. He demands us to answer the question, do you love the world? Do you love the world? If we are not weary of this reality, saints, the danger we may find ourselves in is being in love with darkness while claiming to know 
the God who dwells in the light. Now as we dig into this text, it's evident that John's main point is he doesn't want you to love the world. I don't think he could get any more explicit than that. That's the main point of the text. But he supports this command with three arguments or incentives. The first of which is that love of the world is incompatible with love of the Father. The second is an appeal to the origin of the love of the world. He says that all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And thirdly, he appeals to the fleeting nature of the world. So let's look at each of these in turn. The first incentive John gives us is captured in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Of course, we should know that the world that John is speaking about is that sphere of existence which is under Satan's control. He isn't speaking about necessarily or specifically a bench or specific objects, but he's speaking about those things that serve the agenda of Satan by opposing God's law his purposes, and his kingdom. That's what's primarily in view here when John is speaking about loving the world. And contrary to what we may think, within our lives, ultimately, there are two choices that we make. We ultimately are either going to serve God, we're ultimately going to be striving for the glorification of the Godhead, the cherishing of the beauty of his perfections, the praise and worship of his name, or we are going to be loving, worshiping, praising the world. John doesn't leave any wiggle room here. He, he gives us two options. It isn't that he's being extreme. He's just being true. This is the reality of our lives. Ultimately, we're concerned with either of these two things. It should be then that... We are shaken by this text, not simply because Satan is the adversary of our souls. I mean, it would be really, really stupid if someone who is your opponent who's looking to kill you, you, you know, bring him food and serve him and seek the very enjoyment and his pleasure. That, that's really dumb. But what, what, is, what, is, what should grip our hearts, what should be grave before us is that Satan is actually a puny god. As Hulk famously said of Loki, Satan is actually a weak and puny God. What I mean by this, it's not really laughable. What I mean by this is that it is a cosmic tragedy to make much of the things of this world and the God of this world. To do it over them, to direct our affections towards them, to count God on one hand as being unworthy of our highest praise and adoration. While looking at Satan and saying that that is beautiful. By looking at the things of the world and saying that those are great. I hold them in high esteem. They're in my heart and I'm chasing after them. That is a cosmic tragedy. And that is something that should grip our hearts when we look at the text when John says, Loving the world necessarily means that you do not love the Father. And we, when we consider the entire gambit of Scripture. When we consider the great deeds that Yahweh has done, throwing down various kingdoms while raising up others, when we consider his rescue of Israel and the destruction of her enemies, when we consider the fact that 
God has humbled a man who was king of the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, to the dust, or I should say the grass, because that's what he ate for several years under the judgment of God. When we consider the greatness of this God, and even as we consider this morning, that the word of God, simply by an effortless breath of God, the world that we now live on, the earth that we stand upon, our very being was created. Satan doesn't have that kind of power. God makes the so-called gods of the Marvel Universe look like Muppets from Sesame Street. That is, that is the weight and glory that we should be comparing when we look at, looking at doting over Satan doting over something that's trivial and comparing it to our God. Brethren, we should see then that what we glory in or what we boast in within this life displays where our affections are. Jesus says it this way, where your heart is, there your treasure is also. What is treasure here signifying besides those things that you highly prize? Whether it be a woman, or the 20 grand you have in your account, or the 20 grand you really want in your account. Whatever it is, whatever it is that we speak about, that we're always mentioning. It is those things that we love, whatever it is that we're glorying in. The things that we boast about before people. Oh, this person is this, oh, I am like that. Those are the things that capture the center of our hearts. The things that cause us anxiety and worry. The things that we go to sleep on at night at and, and consider and roll and toss and turn in our beds about. The things that make us sweat and humble before God. Those are the things that grip our hearts. And these are the ways that we can commonly tell what is our heart's central interest. It's how we display the value of things, how we glory in them. We speak about them a lot. We praise them a lot. That's how, that's how we are constituted. And when we do this, when we do this for inordinate desires for the things of the world, John claims it is because we do not love and prize the greatness of our God. John Piper sums this thought very whims- whimsically. He says... If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, then you will be impressed with the street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be very impressed with fireworks. Sorry, you'll be, if you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be, very, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Brethren, we ought to give diligence to ensuring that our hearts and our minds do not esteem highly the things of this life. For the primary reason that in doing so, we display no love, no glory for God. A heart that has grown cold in this regard needs no other remedy than the one that first allowed it to taste of the sweetness of God's glory in the first place. A heart that has grown cold, a heart that has grown hard to the things of God, needs the Spirit's work who begat Him in the first place and grants love and desire for the things of God and a repudiation of the things of the world 
while also nourishing and strengthening our affections for God. I don't have to remind you that Christ has suffered unspeakable sorrows for the, so that I should say, so that he may destroy the power that the world has over us. He has died so that we would not be like puppets chasing every fancy that is dangled before us in this life. He has died so that when we are confronted with those lesser things, when we are confronted with those things that really and truly are trinkets, as the pastor was speaking about, we would be able to say, no, that is not glorious. No, that is not beautiful. No, that is not valuable. And we would esteem him instead. Let us therefore seek to display the efficacy of Jesus' work by not loving the world and its things. Now you, have, you may have noticed that the apostle doesn't provide us with a list of things which constitute the world. That would probably take up the entirety of this Bible. In fact, instead of appealing to objects or stuff... He actually appeals to broad categories we are drawn towards because of our indwelling corruption. Look at verse 16. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. After claiming that love of the world and love of the Father are incompatible, they're mutually exclusive. He provides us with a supporting justification. Why? The reason is that the source or where the inspiration comes from when you are loving the world is not God. It is the fallen world. It is our carnal nature which we have received as a result of the fall of Adam. It is that sinful nature that desires the glorification and gratification of self above all. That is where the first motions, that is where the, the motivation for a love of the world emanates from. It doesn't come from God. Recall, true Christianity begins with God. And John begins his letter in this way. He begins early on in the letter by stating that God is light. And then later down, he speaks about how we ought to live because God is light. The implicit question within the beginning of this epistle is, who is the divine being? He is light, he's holy, he's pure, he's sublime. And then the, the subsequent or consequent response from humans is, how then ought we to live? How then ought we to live? We ought to live in a way that glorifies, in a way that conforms to God's law and his character. That's the flow of reasoning behind true and biblical Christianity. Love of the world perverts this order. It starts with us. How should we live isn't motivated by God, but we look first at our appetites, and then we determine how we should live. What do I want is the first question that is asked. And then, how should I go about living in order to get what I want? That's the, the perversion of what true and biblical Christianity purports. And sadly, even Christians, when they're called out for their inordinate attention or desire for the things of this life, may cry out legalism. They recoil and ask the question like, 
Well, what do you expect me to do? Read my Bible and pray every day? Like, if that's a horrible thing to do. Matthew Henry accurately sums up like the heart behind such a response. Listen to what he says. He says, Many vain efforts have been made to evade the force of this passage by limitations, distinctions, or exceptions. Many have tried to show how far we may be carnally minded and love the world. But the plain meaning of this, these verses cannot easily be mistaken. Unless this victory over the world is begun in the heart, a man has no root in himself, but will fall away, or at most remain an unfruitful professor. Yet these vanities are so alluring to the corruption in our hearts, that without constant watching and prayer, we cannot escape the world, or obtain victory over the God and Prince of it. What a sobering reminder. What a sobering reminder. It isn't a case where we can simply hop to heaven, be glorified, and kind of live a monastic life, and just reject everything in this world. The very desires in our hearts is what John is pointing to as the things that we are, are, are attracted to in the world. We, even if I was on a mountain could be attracted to the world. Even if I was absented from all of the porn, all of the scantily clad women, all of the horrible music, if I was absented from every overtly carnal thing in this life, the first motions in my flesh would still direct me towards the things of this world. And that's why John doesn't leave any wiggle room here. He imports the entire weight of the first commandment upon us when he says these things. Our passions and our desires should all firstly and supremely be directed towards God. Otherwise, they will be stifled by the deceitfulness of the world. It's, it's one or the other. But how often do we cultivate the exact opposite in our lives by giving way to being visually stimulated by the things of this life? How often do our eyes go after the things of this world? How often do we see, like Esau, the red red, and desire it more than the, th the spiritual things, the deeper things, the things of God? How often do we have that reality borne out in this life? John adds to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, to warn us concerning those things that allure us visually. We may be tempted to think only things like women, opulent houses, designer clothing, or the like are in view here. But we should think more generally. Here we are reminded to, to avoid as much as possible the sights that arouse unfitting desires or, or sinful desires in our lives. We are reminded here that it isn't simply that there overtly sinful things that we are supposed to be watching our, our eyes or directing our eyes away from. The things that lead you to sin you should avoid. The things that you look upon and carry you down further along the road of sin are the things that you avoid. So whether that be within the realm of entertainment, watching suits and recognizing that for some reason, the argumentation there leaves you a lot more angry and haughty. 
that's the sort of thing that you avoid. The, the, the realm of entertainment is actually a big, big, big problem for Christians. Many TV shows are simply filled with inappropriate images, but they're also filled with ungodly themes, which promote and provoke in us a, a lifestyle that is not God-honoring. Even sometimes when we are looking upon these things and considering them, aimlessly indulging in what they have given to us, we are not aware that these are the things that are moving us towards being short-tempered. These are the things that are moving us towards being able to take that extra five seconds looking at that woman. These are the things that provoke these first motions in us. Brethren, the reason that John pauses in this letter to give us this all-important injunction, which is actually the first injunction in the entire book, is that we can really easily be hoodwinked by the world. It's actually very, very simple. Not because Christians aren't intelligent people, but because we have remaining corruption, which John is appealing to when he says the desires of our flesh motivate us towards these. It's actually very, very simple to be hoodwinked. Satan doesn't come with a pitchfork. He doesn't come with, with horns. And if he does, that's really just to distract you from what is really going on. It is... The things of the world are cunningly crafted for our pleasure and enjoyment. They aren't done in a, in a way that overtly says this will harm you. That, that, isn't, that isn't the case. The things of this world are packaged in such a way that you want them. You really do. So John is ensuring that we be vigilant because the world knows how to lure us in and how to really hook us. On, on various things. Just think about how, for instance, insidious the agenda for abortion is. It's packaged in platitudes of human liberty and freedom. That's how it's packaged. It's not packaged in an attempt at saying, well, murder this person. Your life is going to be ruined because you're going to go through mental difficulty and disorder afterwards. It's packaged in a way that you can be free. Why not do it? Why? Don't you want your freedom? Don't you want to not have this burden? That's how the things of this world are packaged. The worldly agenda is deeply pernicious. And that means dangerous or harmful in a subtle way. For those who, like me, missed it this morning when the pastor said it. <laughs> but, but seriously, the, the, the worldly mental programming we receive from the media doesn't beget further abhorrence of sin. It doesn't make us feel greater distaste for the world. That's, that's not what happens. We have an innate difficulty in not loving the world. And John recognizes this. Added to this, we were brought up in a world learning its agenda and its ideals. We went to school, most of us, in secondary school, learning primarily a worldly philosophy. You know, get educated so you can get money. Full stop. Period. That's, that's your life in a sentence. Get educated so you can get money. That's, that's, that's all that the world offers you. Go and get it. You're alive now. Don't you need to live? Go and get it. Therefore, we shouldn't think that we won't make any progress in this Christian life without a 
constant awareness, as Matthew Henry said, a watchfulness for these agendas. It's tragic that we can finish, as I said before, three seasons of CSI or Law and Order or whatever for in, in like two or three days. Three seasons, two or three days, easily. But ask us to read the epistle of James and it's like pulling teeth. We, we can't manage to do it. It's because there is something within us that is deeply drawn to the things of this life. Let us therefore be urgent, recognizing our own frailty, brothers and sisters. Let us be urgent in setting our eyes upon the unseen things of Christ. Let us follow the spiritual treasures hidden in God's word, that we may be able to see the traps of the devil and respond by rejecting worldly things. Now the third vice which John points out is the pride of life. I say third, but there are obvious overlaps in each of them. But it should be evident to us that this evil age is perpetually seeking to smother out the love of God by the elevation of self. It is me, 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 and me. That is what the world promotes. Elevate yourself Get what you need to get out of this life. And that is what should satisfy you. Go after your possessions. Go after whatever makes you feel good about yourself. And it doesn't do so by forcing us into submission. But by seduction and coercion. That makes us depart from greater love. To be enamored with lesser things. And so is the subtle lure of pride which appears even in our most noble endeavors. For instance, it's possible to occupy the pulpit for your own glorification. It's quite simple. We see it on TV often. It's possible to give to charity, to be known as benevolent, and so on. But brethren, God isn't... And, and I, should, you should, I cite those examples so you could see that God isn't simply interested in our outward conformity. Nor is John... He's speaking about the corruption that's within and telling you that it is because of this corruption that we proceed to sin. God isn't interested in mere outward conformity. Matters of the heart are open before him as well. And not only that, we will be judged by them. We often think, well, let me be careful not to chop this fella in his head. But don't give, don't give any heed. To the fact that, well, we are thinking hateful thoughts towards someone who's made in God's image. We have, we have an innate ability to think upon our sin in categories of greater and lesser. And because in our minds they're lesser, we simply avoid thinking about them as sin in the first place. We ought to then earnestly give heed to both our duties and the motivations that are for them. Now, concerning the pride, pride of life, when, when I read the text, I was thinking also about the fact that why do we as Christians or anybody boast about the things that we've freely received? Are we honestly so deluded that we actually think that we legitimately can take ultimate, ultimate credit for our accomplishments in this world? We came into this world naked. Some of, some of you have children and all of them, you know how they entered this world without possessions, without anything. 
completely helpless and at the mercy of doctors, parents, whoever, completely destitute. So why then do we boast about the things which we have? Have we not received everything we have because of the great and glorious grace of our God and Father? Have we not indeed received all of these things because of his glorious providence in our lives? We haven't been placed in the place position where we are merely by our own willingness or merely by our own efforts. Where we are is a pure act of grace. Saints, your intellect, your wealth, your academic qualifications, even your strides in righteousness have been made yours because of God. Where then is boasting besides in the goodness of our God and Savior? There's none. There's none. To love God then is to truly fight against this desire to try to promote yourself when you have made some sort of what you may consider attempt at grandeur. When you have done these things which you consider grandiose in your eyes. Fighting them is what John has in view here. We have, we, we're warned because it is present, it is a clear and present danger. So fight the desires of the pride of life. The man who does not love his wife will not fight the lure of adulterous flirting or the subtle overtures of another woman because he's driven by his lust and not his love for his wife. Loving God necessarily involves fighting impulses and urges which seek to dull or even sully or divert our perception and love of God's grandeur. But John provides one final incentive or reason for loving for not loving the world, sorry. <laughs> so let's move on to that final point. I mentioned before that loving the world is actually a great peril to our souls. Sooner or later, the hard truth will confront us that the world is like a strong undercurrent at sea on a pristine day. As you frolic without watchfulness, you are ever so slowly being dragged further and further away from the safety of the shore. Without awareness and the consequent fight to return inland, you are out to sea and in great danger. Forget lionfish, forget man of wars, you may be able to see them and pick them up. You may even quickly recover for them, but you will not return from 400, 500 meters out of sea with strong undercurrents without great difficulty. And so it is the insidious tug of the world upon our lives. It is deadly. And sadly, laying hold of the world is what so many believe is biblical Christianity. This is what is purported by many prosperity preachers. They tell you, no, the world isn't passing, the world isn't deadly, go after it. Jesus came to give us abundant life, didn't he? So what else could we be talking about besides getting the world's stuff? This is the poison of the prosperity gospel. That they feed you exactly what kills you. They feed you the lie that life is about getting more and more stuff. About getting greater and greater blessings. That's not what Christianity is ultimately concerned with. And that's why John 
issues this all-important warning to us. Again, I repeat, naked we came into this world. But look at all of us, clothed. No possessions we were born. But look at all of our affluence. Brethren, God has been kind to us by giving us the better portion. Namely, saving us into union with Himself. He has not given us the goods of the world which are fading. Its outcome is destined for destruction. As John says, the world is passing away. And so is everyone who is attached to the world and outside of Christ. The glamour of it all, the excitement of it all, will all ultimately pass with time. So what are you investing your time and labour in? What attracts your attention and the best of your efforts and abilities? Is it building bigger barns? Only a fool buys stock in a company which is sure to crash. It is only the unreasonable person who will seek accommodation in a sinking ship. The things of this life will lose their luster and value. Some things may be more permanent than others, sure. But ultimately, when God comes back, Platinum will burn just as easily as hay. Ultimately, when God comes back, everything will be undone. Everything in this life. So, while, while we cleave to these things, we are cleaving to something that is perishing, something that will not last. It's like picking up sand and trying to run a marathon with it. And saying, I will keep it to the last grain. Even as we see grain by grain, it's slipping out of our hands. It's futile. It is passing away. God has said so. And there is coming a day where, when ultimately everything, everything that we own, we will have to give an account to God for. Everything that we've desired in this life, everything that we've stored up for ourselves, we will have to give an account for how we used it for the manifest glory of God or how we used it to serve our own agenda and serve our own purposes. God comes to judge. When, when God comes to judge, it will be shown how trivial these things are. And in the grand scheme of things, how detestable they are as well. Brethren, the world is not your oyster, as commonly purported in secular media. To do what we will with it is not our own. These possessions are trinkets compared to the riches that are stored up for us. Well, that we would gaze upward and consider what Christ has laid up before us in heaven. Oh, that we would consider the fact that the things of this world are growing strangely dim because of the surpassing knowledge of God. The things of this life are obviously not without some value. John George Downham, the Puritan, once famously offered this advice about our engagement with the world and its things. And I'm sure you've heard some derivative of this from the pastor already. He soberly reminds us, and I quote, Let us use worldly things as wise pilgrims to do their staves and other necessities convenient for their journey. So long as they help us forward in our way, let us make use of them and accordingly esteem them. But if they become troublesome hindrances and cumbersome burdens, let us leave them behind us or cast them away. The temptation of prosperity like unseen bullets wound and kill us before they are discerned. The things that we possess, we must possess for Christ's sake. 
or we will be deceived and we will ultimately suffer great harm. As I said before, this isn't an injunction or command simply for those people who are in the unbelieving world. It isn't merely for someone who's rich like Bill Gates, so you have to consider this. It's for you and me. It's for all of the saints who live before the face of God. The house that you have, the jobs which you desire must all be for Christ's sake. The Apostle Paul says this clearly. It, it is a command that everything you do has to be done for the glory of God. Every decision, everything you own has to serve his purposes. Otherwise you are building your own kingdom of sand and swimming with the perilous tide of the world's agenda. But besides the transiency of the things of the world around us, there is a like temporal nature to the very desires for the things we have. We will actually outgrow many of the desires we have. At 40 and 50, we'll think it is contemptible to do the things that we were doing at 15 and 16. As the scripture says clearly, the world is passing away along with its desires. But it's sadder, frankly, when we see old men, 80 and 90, who have not left their lust of their younger and former years, who with their canes and in their wheelchair are miserable because they desire to do things which they physically are unable to do. They physically don't have the capacity to do it and yet they are longing after it. And frankly that's sad. That, that, is, mis that, that is misery. To be contained to a body that can't even in a small measure fulfill the desires that it has. And ultimately the futility that they have is what we would be getting into should we strive, should we desire the things this life and there's a even more sinister logic that sometimes pervades our minds though we know the things of this life will pass though we know that they won't last we think let me enjoy them as much as I can now because they won't last make hay while the sun is out you only have one life to live common phrases thrown around in the world and it's this precise logic that leaves people on their deathbed with grave disappointment, knowing that they've spent their entire lives chasing the wind, knowing that their entire lives are a mountain to futility. Brethren, we have a greater and more precious hope than these things. Finally, you would think that how John ends the passage would be different. You think the antithesis to the world passing away would be that God abides since he's the thing that or the, the being that lasts forever. But we read here that it is the man who is given permanence when he does the will of God. Brethren, the unseen things which are spiritual are of more value and permanence than the things in this life which are seen. Your efforts to love your children diligently and allow them to earnestly Seek the law of God and be conformed to it. Your attempts to strive at your workplace to be diligently working before a master in heaven and not your supervisor who really doesn't care 
whether you do your work or not. These things are working towards a great and precious reward. Your efforts then to do the duties and commands laid upon us are working an eternal blessedness. We may never have the world's goods, brethren. We, we actually may live the same way that we're living currently for the rest of our lives. But we have a higher and greater hope, a reward from Christ, which he has purchased by his own blood and has provided to us through the robes of his righteous garments. Therefore, do not let us love the world. That's the charge here. And what a high calling. What a difficult goal. But could you offer Christ anything less than every fiber in your being trying to achieve this injunction? Could you look upon Christ's face if he were here now, seeing his nail-pierced hands and his wounded side, and say to him that you think it's unnecessary to not love the world? Could you gaze, could your gaze meet his and you venture to express your unwillingness to follow what is written here? Brethren, he has endured grievous pains that we who trust in him by faith may abide with him forever. The person who looks upon Christ's face and says, I prefer the world over Christ has never experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. If it is that we find ourselves with a undue desire, an inordinate desire for the world, we ought to repent. We ought to lay these things bare before God in confession and strive, as John says, to do and to abide in the will of the Father. Let us repudiate the things which serve the agenda of Satan and strive to do the will of God.